Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Really comes down to like, there's, there's three things that people want, right? Three, and, and I'm sure if you ask yourself exactly the same thing, you're going to find exactly the same as it exactly the same answers people want freedom right they want significance and they want transformation this is property investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories mindset and strategies i'm tyron shump and in this episode we're speaking with glenn mcgrath otherwise known as goose Having started his career in organizing events and music festivals, we'll learn about how he learned from his first investing mistakes that allowed him to discover a trick to purchasing property and much, much more. Glenn McGrath, otherwise known as Goose, is the co-founder of Buyer's Agent at Dashdot. On any given day, he helps everyday Australians learn how to invest in property, gets involved in helping clients find property and guiding them through with mindset. It's kind of two two parts to that. So there's the holistic, what do I do in any given day, which is um, which is I help, I help everyday Australians build wealth through real estate. So we're actually on a mission to try and change the financial future of 150 Australians by April 2020, which is pretty awesome. But what that constitutes, what that constitutes in a in a day basically, is a roughly sort of you know. 20 to 30% of the day, I work with my partner, Gabby, to, um, to work out how we can help spread that message and how, how we can help educate people and, and provide you know, really valuable um, stuff to people and spend about 25% of the day on the phone, giving people advice and helping them through their journey. Obviously, we want to support them in that, but people are at different stages. So I'm really passionate about trying to help people um, and answer their questions, even, you know, even if it's just to help give them some guidance. And then um, the rest of the day is focused on you know, servicing our existing clients and um, uh, property research and, and stuff like health and mindset. Growing up in a small town in regional Victoria, McGrath actually started his career in organizing music events and festivals. When I was, I think we had 200 people in primary school there and um, so that's in regional Victoria. Um, I went to high school in, in the big smoke, the big town, you know, the, the nearby town that had like, you know, traffic lights and stuff like that. It was uh, <laughs> so that was, that was pretty exciting. And that's, that's where I got, um, that's where I got the nickname Goose was when I was at high school there. Um, but uh, I actually got into um, music events, festivals and stuff. So I started organizing festivals and events when I was 14 years old um, in, that, in that area. And Kind of that kind of dictated a lot of the path for, for you know the subsequent years. I moved, I moved to moved to the big big smoke Melbourne when I was eighteen, and and yeah went headlong into pursuing a career in uh, in events. The economic impact when power stations got privatised in Glengarry made quite an impression on him and influenced his ideas about economics later in life. Roughly two hundred kilometres 
east of Melbourne um, in Gippsland. So it's in a it's in a quite industrial area. I mean, I from our kitchen you could see you can see one of the power stations, Yulon Power Station. So it's Yulon um, Power Station, Loyang Power Station, the paper mills. So it was a quite industrial area, and for what it's worth. Economically, it was a quite an interesting space. My, my parents, my dad was a fitter and turner at the power station. My mum was a nurse, so it was quite a classic, um, you know, regional family to grow up in, nuclear family to a sen- in, in a sense. But one brother, so it was very kind of standardised format there. But then, obviously, when the power stations and stuff got privatised, I watched a really huge economic impact happen to that region, and that kind of shaped a lot of my opinions around, you know economics and politics and society in general. He goes on to explain why he decided to move from his small town to Melbourne, citing his desire to experience more of the world. I've always been desirous of, you know, expanding my potential and expanding my um, my circle of, of experience in the world. So I never really had I never really had this small town mentality. Um, so I was always going to move. Now, I mean, as I say, I was involved in events and starting to run my own events in um in, in the local area down there and it was a natural kind of progression to to want to pursue that further. I mean, I'd already started getting work in Melbourne and and we're starting to work on larger and larger events. So it was a bit of a natural progression. Plus, you know, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time and I thought, right, now's the big opportunity. I'm out of here and, uh, and headed for life and packed my bags and headed for life in the big smoke. McGrath shares about the events he was helping to run that kick-started his career before he went into real estate. Everything was a journey. So I started out on small events. The first, um, the first, my first professional gig was when I was um, actually 16 years old. I got, uh, I got paid to stage manage at Moomba for, for Paul Kelly and the Whitlams. And naturally, at 16 years old, having only been in Melbourne about twice, it was all pretty daunting and I was shaking in my boots. But um, that went on to – my whole career in events was – um, grew quite quickly. I worked on um, worked on Big Day Out in Melbourne, so that was obviously a, a large festival there. And it, yeah, it's taken me all over the world. I've I've done events in the UK, uh, all through Asia, Europe, and the States. Stuff like Glastonbury, Burning Man, London Olympics. Um, organised events for the Malaysian government for for one million people and stuff. So it's a, been a pretty wild and varied. Um, journey over over a very long period of time, including um, you know working on pretty much every one of Australia's largest touring festivals. How long have you been doing that for now? I've obviously moved into the real estate space, but for for um, about well, I started in events when I was fourteen, so that's got sixteen years or something like that. Um, yeah, and so for a good ten years, I was only spending six months in Australia and spending six, spending six months on the road overseas. Um, you know, touring, living on festival sites, putting on big shows. So it's been a pretty, um, it's been a pretty radical decade. He then reminisces on the memories that stood out for him during this period of his life when he was running events. Look, like everything, you go through um, you go through phases, and I've had a pretty. I've actually had a pretty varied experience over the past 16 years. I even I even took actually a year or year out of that to to live in Vietnam and work as an adventure motorcycle tour guide, which was pretty exciting. Um, change change of pace as well. So I've kind of um, had the opportunity to get around quite a bit. And the biggest driver for me is always, has usually been the um, the the people side and the creative side. So um, I've always had an affinity to wanting to to try and create a positive. A positive space or a positive experience for people. Um, so, uh, the ability to manipulate that with events—I mean, events in and of themselves are, I guess, quite um, 
uh, quite, let's be honest, quite wasteful, right? But um, when you can, well, they are, I mean, in a sense, in a resource sense, but if you can create an environment that has the potential to to be benefic- beneficial to people, like to be able to give them an experience that they can then take back into their communities and take back into their homes and may help transform their 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 state into a positive state is a really powerful position to be in. So, um, you know, seeing some of the seeing some of those kind of impacts on people in places, particularly places like Burning Man um, uh, in in Nevada, and you know, places like Glastonbury, you know, they're truly unique events with unique, unparalleled levels of creativity and immersiveness. And um, yeah, it's 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 like another world. A lot of those places. At the age of 17, McGrath left school to start his own events company after much serious consideration and discussion with his parents. I actually didn't finish school. So, no, I, so yeah, I started organizing events when I was 14. Um, I, was actually really, <laughs> I was actually really good at school and I loved it. I wasn't one of those like, ah, school never fitted for me. I mean, yeah, I was disruptive, but I actually quite liked, was quite, quite excelled at academia. But I actually did leave school um, uh, when I was 17 to start my own events company. By that point, I was already running enough events, already knew what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I gave a lot of real serious consideration. And my, my perspective on that was um, that, as I said, I was quite good at school, but I knew that I wasn't fully focused because I was already running, basically running a business. Um, and I went, well, look, if I do it, I know that I'm not going to be giving it 100%. So is, maybe if I want to do it, I can come back and maybe say repeat year 12 if I really find I need, need to do that. I discussed it with my parents at length and, they so they'd seen what I'd been doing for you know three years at that point, um, and they fully supported me and endorsed me and, and encouraged me to to seek out my own path. At seventeen, you're very mature to be starting to run a business. A lot of kids at that age are still, I guess, getting their foot in the ground to go. Okay, should I go to university? Should I start going out of work? It, it, it's it's a lot of you know decision to be made, and it sounds like you already had that decision made up already with such great support from the family. Totally. It was quite funny actually because, you know, the big consideration was, you know, do you go and get tertiary education in that sector, like say do an events course. But actually by the time I was 18 and after, after I, just after I moved to Melbourne, I was actually guest lecturing at universities on, <laughs> on event management and festival management. So, that, so people that were my age, I was actually, and older, I was going and being their guest lecturer and teaching them how to do it. So it was, um, I was pretty confident I took the right path. How did that feel to be talking to people in your sort of age group and, and telling them this is what you do in the real world? Equal parts exhilarating and, you know, exhilarating, great stroke of the ego and also absolutely terrifying. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Glenn McGrath's journey and how he got started in property. And lo and behold, we came across one and kind of got spruiked to and sold on and decided that was a very fantastic idea and, and pretty much signed up to, um, to buy an apartment off the plan. How he educated himself on property investment. But we did as many courses as we could, read as many books as we could. We became as immersed in that as, as humanly possible. His golden advice when it comes to buying property. And then I set out to try and find those properties. And I realized he could actually find lots of them. All right? And so it was, that, it was that point when I realized that it was completely feasible to bolt together the exact metrics that you need you know, to create a, a unicorn kind of property. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Even though McGrath can't pinpoint an exact trigger that encouraged him to get into property, 
He recognizes the role of podcasts and other people's investing stories have played in his property journey. I think there's actually like um, a really unique point of difference between my story and most people. Now, I, I, I am inspired obviously by this podcast. I've been, I've been a subscriber now for hmm, 18 months or something. Um, and uh, and a lot of other podcasts, and there's a pretty there's a massive commonality um, that I see between a lot of people's stories. And it's, it's, don't, don't get me wrong, it's huge and varied. And you know, like listening to everyone from people like Jane Slacksmith and you know, and Mark Rolton, and all so many different people have come from many different places. But um, there's a general kind of consensus that uh, at some point early on, there's been a there's been a trigger um, that's encouraged people to get into into property now. Um, that's not something that ever really happened in my life. I mean, I'm actually currently <laughs> trying to trying to convince my parents that they need to do something um, to bolster their to bolster their retirement. I mean, the the environment that I grew up in was not one that really kind of went into that. So, for me, my property journey has actually been fairly short. McGrath then shares with us why he got started in property despite the environment he grew up in. And as I was saying, it's it's it's. I was not ever in that environment where I was surrounded by people saying it was a good idea to get into property. In fact, the general consensus um, from my peers and also even my family is that it was that it was too expensive, too risky, too hard. You'll never get there. You're never going to make it. No one, no one can afford to buy a property. How are you supposed to get on the property ladder? What are you supposed to do? It's too risky. How are you ever going to know? And it became a much, a, a quite commonly accepted thing, particularly amongst my my peers. Um, that it was a foregone conclu- conclusion that we'll probably never get into property. Um, so for me, it's been a quite steep journey over the last couple of years as I've become educated about real estate and also the the power of it. So um, yeah, I mean, and it's also become a passion of mine to try and break that um, that psychology that that surrounds real estate and and the inaccessibility to it. Um, so I guess so for me, my journey in investing started around eighteen months ago, roughly, um, and in fact, it didn't start really that that proactively or that well. I mean, I like to say that we've got um, two and a half properties. Um, so the my partner Gabby and I, we um, we'd been educating ourselves, reading books, uh, doing all that kind of stuff, and and we thought we were we were ready to make you know that next big step. You know, as, as every young couple, you're thinking, right, what are we going to do? And at that point, at that stage, stage of my life, I was working around 100, 100 hours a week uh, in events. And and to be honest, you know, after that long in events, um, I was starting to, you know, I guess I was losing a lot of the passion, spending that much time on the road and everything like that. And I guess, you know, like most people, I was looking like, what's that next step? That's like burnout, basically. 100 hours a week, you're working twice as much as what an average person, or actually even more, two and a half almost hours worth of most people who do a 40-hour week on average. So, that you know, that is definitely a trigger point then. If you've been doing that for many years, I don't know how you survive that. I have to say, you know, give my hat off to you. That's amazing. Pretty extreme. Obviously, it's not 100 hours a week every week, but it, on average, it was, yeah, it was it, it was at least double um, a um a normal working week. So yeah, I mean, look, the 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 human condition can handle quite a lot for quite, for quite a long period of time. But at a certain point, you start to think, uh, is this it? Now, 
that, and that, that, that commonality of phrase is actually something that I have heard so many times, particularly in the last few months, particularly from my peers that I previously just mentioned, you know, the general consensus is, oh, we'll never, we, you know, it's, it's all going to be too, it's all too hard. The amount of people that, are, that have said, you know, is this it is, um, is a huge thing. And I guess I reached that point, um, you know, in the last couple of years. And so Gabby and I, um, naturally started thinking all right what are we going to do and let's let's try and make let's try and get somewhere and and um and i remember there was a public holiday and and i said to gabby we were sitting around reading books and i said oh let's go for the bike ride said, oh where are we going to ride to i said well let's let's ride around oh, i see there's a few apartment blocks being built we're in footscray in um in melbourne i see there's a p- apartment blocks being built let's go let's go for a ride and have a look at some of the uh display display units you know do a bit of window shopping and then and lo and behold, we came across one and kind of got spruiked to and sold on and decided that was a very fantastic idea and, and pretty much signed up to, um, to buy an apartment off the plan. McGrath and his partner were convinced they had made a good decision, but later realized after attending a seminar, they had possibly not made the right choice in their investment. We were convinced we were not being in, making an emotional decision. We were convinced we were making a well-thought-out, structured decision and you know, it was going to be a, the right decision for our future. And you know, The glossy docs looked great. And uh, the salesman was fantastic. And um, we were convinced we were making an amazing step for, forward for our future. Now, at that point in our lives, we didn't actually, you know, we didn't have um, much money. So, uh, and that was always a barrier. Look, we had a little bit of money saved up, but we had to, um, you know, we had to go to our family and friends and, well, our family and ask for help to, to get started. And, and luckily, we found a bit of support from our family. So, it was fantastic and, and wonderful and We'd sit there every night and we'd sort of look at the glossy dock and think, oh, isn't this cosmopolitan dream going to be fantastic? And then I remember, I remember <laughs> quite vividly the day that we signed the contract. I was in my office um, and we had to leave early and uh, I'd sort of been pretty quiet about um, the fact we were buying an apartment because, I don't know, I just hadn't, again, not many, at that point, not really many other people I knew had even bought property. So I guess there was an element I sort of didn't know how to talk about it and my business partner said oh oh where are you off to I said oh I'm just going to sign a contract anyway we raced out and it was um it was four o'clock in the afternoon and we were frantically scribbling as fast as we could quickly trying to sign the contracts because we'd booked in to go to a property education seminar that night so we were trying to rush through the contracts we're like hurry up hurry up hurry up we've got to go we've got to go we've got to go so we signed all these contracts as quickly as we could we jumped in the car and we had a celebratory dinner of a halal snack pack uh, on the way, on the way to uh, a property education seminar, so it's very, um, it was very highbrow. We were celebrating uh, in the car, sharing sharing spoonfuls of halal snack pack. It was great. And then we got to it was actually a rich dad poor dad um, property education seminar. And, um, and look, you know, say what you want about property education seminars, but it definitely um, opened our eyes um, to some degree. And by the end of that evening, we were pretty certain we might have potentially not made the right financial choice. With this particular property, McGrath believed it would help improve the financial situation, seeing it as both a place to move into and live and to later use it as an investment. Lack of real comprehensive understanding about property economics at the time. Um, you know, we were convinced, you, you, know, you know the saying, property grows in, doubles in value every seven to 10 years. Okay, now, you're obviously in a position that you understand that that's not a, an absolute truism, but for the majority of people, that is an absolute truism, you know, and and that is what people think. And so, if you think that, then it's like, well, just buy anything, right? It doesn't matter. 
because if you buy a property, it's going to double every seven to 10 years. It's a no-brainer. Now, obviously, that's not true, but the majority of Australians do think that, uh, and we were in that. So it was, our, it was our view that it was going to help us get ahead financially. Um, not yet. Pretty much after, straight after, I, I looked a lot more into what the growth statistics were for two-bedroom apartments uh, in that area, and my heart sank a little bit. And so... Yeah, and and also right at that right at that time, it was um right at the start of the slump. So, <laughs> so, so so perfect. Um, but look, yeah, you know, it was a massive it was a massive lesson to learn. Now that being said, um, who knows what it's who knows what the economic cli- uh, climate is going to be like when it's built because it's still not built. And this is why I say we've got two and a half properties. So this first one is was uh, just off the plan, and you just put a deposit and sign the contract. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Quite a substantial deposit. We've signed the contract um, and locked ourselves in and then started gearing ourselves up to get that ready. Now, it's currently been like, I think we were, it was originally supposed to settle um, this year, but it's already been pushed back to, to Q4 2021 now. So, um, it's the, the sh- sands have shifted quite a lot on that. Um, but the most amazing thing about that whole experience was that it was an absolute trigger. Um, for for the rest of the journey that unfolded quite quickly. Taking into consideration fluctuations in economic conditions, McGrath will hold on his first property as he believes it will be a cash flow positive investment. Quite a way to start and in considering it hasn't settled yet, but I can tell you we're much more confident about it now. And now who knows what the economic conditions and climate are going to be at the time, but our expectation on our analysis is that it is going to be um, a cash flow positive investment. So whilst it might not be amazing, um, our view is that we are going to continue to hold it, um, not least not least of which because we borrowed money off our family to, to be able to get it. So, we want to make sure we make the most of that as well. Two years ago, the the market was pretty pretty much on a rise or had been towards the end of the market cycle. Yeah. So, this was, this was, this was towards the middle of last year. So, at the moment, as you, as you realize, the um, market has changed quite substantially since then. When you say it's something that you will hold and it is cash flow positive, how is that possible for a property like that in, say, Melbourne? Based on the rents, basically. So, and that's why I say it's going to be dependent on the economic climate at the time, because if the demand changes too much and the rents don't don't carry as they are forecasted to, then we might then it might not be. But because it's a two bedroom apartment, um, and yeah, just at the price we bought and at the expected rent. So the price was around five hundred thousand dollars or five hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars. And the expected rent um for you know comparable rent for something like that is around six hundred dollars, six hundred and twenty. So, you know, there's a the potential that that we should still be able to hold it. So basically you might have to inject a little bit of money into it because that's six hundred dollars a week, that probably will just be a little bit under to cover interest rate on and this is why it's going to come down to the economic conditions at a time now because if it's like end of end of end of, if it's Q3 2021 or even if it's a bit longer there's the um there's a likelihood that that rents may have increased in that time but there's also a huge amount of supply risk in that area because you know if you look at it in isolation and you go oh yeah awesome it's a two bedroom two bedroom apartment with good finishing so it's like an above average quality apartment it's within four and a half kilometers of the CBD it's on the riverfront and it can can't ever be built out it's a beautiful absolutely Fantastic, great facilities, but also all those facilities are the drawbacks too because you've got the lifts and you've got the pool and you've got all these wonderful things <laughs> which you've got to pay for, right? So the body corporates um, uh, come into play as well. But look, it really, it's really going to come down to what is the situation at the time and what is the, what is the expected rent at the time. So um, the reality is we're going to make good on it. Um, 
because, well, again, we're going to wait and see because we've already put a substantial deposit into it. So um, we're hopeful that the, the climate has, has shifted by the time that settles and then we're going to make good on that and, uh, and make the most of it. And, like, and, and to be honest, if, if it's not cash flow positive, we'll probably go live in it because, as I said, it's amazing. It's got a pool and a gym and a, and a movie room and all kinds of wonderful stuff. McGraw then advises on buying off-the-plan apartments and despite his not-so-great first investment property, praises as being a catalyst for his property investment journey. Having learned what I've learned and gone through the experience that I've gone through, I'd absolutely categorically, and I do absolutely categorically advise people not to buy off-the-plan apartments. Um, that being said, of course, if it's the right deal and it's the right price, then great, go for it. But um, yeah, in a general sense, financially, yeah, it was a very poor decision. However, from my perspective, it's also um, one of the best decisions I've ever made um, because it was the catalyst that kind of put me on onto this property journey. Sometimes you need a bit of a catalyst and a bit of a shock um, to to kind of strike change. I mean, and the biggest change happens through happens through impact, and I think that's what's happened there. So, um, as much as I look at it, and I look, I definitely don't have any bad feelings around our investment choice. Um, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Well, you know, it's either going to be a beautiful and amazing place to live or it's going to be a, a moderate to okay uh, investment, but it's what's got us here and I'm, and I'm extremely grateful for that every day. He goes a little deeper into his property education journey and what he discovered along the way. That definitely was a catalyst and that was a catalyst for a, um, a pretty intense um, journey into property education. Now, a lot of people get their property education and property experience and I guess absorb it um, gradually, potentially over you know, years or even decades until they have a well-formed and well-rounded opinion. But my general pace in life is, is usually much, <laughs> much faster than uh, other people's. I went, I went full bore. Gabby and I went um, right into it. We did as many courses as we could, read as many books as we could. We became as immersed in that as as humanly possible. So the um, the time shift between my work went from sort of 80 to 100 hours a week working in events to I scaled that back to around probably on average uh, over, the, over, the, over the period of the sort of middle part to, to the later, latter part of last year um, to around 50 hours and then was dedicating the other 50 to purely to property. Um, property research, uh, understanding and, and yeah, we went really really deep into it you know i'm i'm very analytic in in my processes and my understandings and i'm really you know i could look i was looking around me and i could see all these stories of these people of people who'd grown wealthy and and developed passive incomes and achieved financial freedom and you know like you know it really comes down to like there's there's three things that people want right three and and i'm sure if you ask yourself exactly the same thing you're going to find exactly the same as exactly the same answers people want freedom Right? They want significance and they want transformation. Okay? So those, those three fundamental drivers you know, were things that I could kind of see had happened to other people. You know, people had found freedom, whether it be financial freedom, time freedom. You know, they'd found that freedom of choice. Um, you know, they'd, they'd found significance in the fact that they'd um, you know, create, built a legacy for their family or they created something more. They had some way that, you know, that they were going to be, that they'd made an impact on the world. Um, and they'd been able to, to transform their life. And I was like, I can see that it works, <laughs> you, you know, and I had to understand how and why. And so I went really, really 
deep into trying to understand the property economics um, and what all those shifting sands mean and all of the different parameters and macro and microeconomic factors that dictated, you know, the movements and, and pros and cons and impacts and, you know, enhances and all the different factors of, of, of what makes real estate move and, and shapes that uh, economic landscape. Um, sort out lots of advice and got to understand people. Now, my big aha moment though was when I, you know, people talk about real estate, there's a lot of different views on it. There's stuff like, you know, that, that uh, around negative gearing or, you know, buy and hold or like just, just buy a property or double every seven to 10 years. There's kind of all these, these really general statements, but I wanted to understand what the pure mechanics of it were that you could make it work. So once I understood, okay, what, like, okay, what do you need? Cash flow so that it can, it can self-sustain the portfolio and you want significant capital growth and you want to buy to be able to offset any risk of economic decline or downturn by having a mechanical lever that you can pull. So a value-add strategy, right? And I thought, oh, well, if you have all those three, then surely it just works, right? And of course, everyone goes, well, yeah, but you can't find them. So I sort of went, okay, what do you need to bolt together? I looked at all the serviceability requirements in finance and I started to understand like the percentages you needed to be able to bolt together. And then I set out to try and find those properties. And I realized you could actually find lots of them. Right? And so it was, that, it was that point when I realized that it was completely feasible to bolt together the exact metrics that you need you know, to create a, a unicorn kind of property and you could actually go and find those. And that was the moment that I suddenly realized that it was possible and it was possible to build a portfolio that you could, that was repeatable and was safe and secure and risk averse to almost any economic condition. That was the turning point. And when I kind of put that together and, and I had that kind of eureka like, oh my God, I think I've worked it out. Now, that might not be that revolutionary to a lot of people, but for someone who didn't understand that, um, that was a, a really unique moment. And I, and I, I ran that past a lot of uh, mentors and, and peers and stuff like that went, is this right? Can you really do this? And the general consensus was yes. And I was like, wow, fantastic. And that subsequently is, um, you know, the, uh, the strategy that we've applied to, to building our um, portfolio and that we'll continue to, to apply to building our portfolio. And that's also um, the strategy that we apply um, and, and encourage other people to apply as well. Inspired by McGrath's story and journey, we'll continue the conversation in a future episode of Property Invest Story, where we'll learn more about his strategies for investing. So, one of the big messages I've I've been trying to spread at the moment is that if you can, if you can, um, make sure you're putting your strategy together properly and making sure that you're leveraging assets against each other. The reason why he started this journey. My biggest why is that I want to be able to help other people. The daily habits he attributes to his success. I do that every single day, and then. I follow that up by going to the gym for one hour every day, following that routine. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Invest Story. To jumpstart your week, here's Mindset Monday where our real success in property isn't knowledge and skill, it's 70% psychology and mindset. Here's this week's mindset tip from wealth coach Jill McIntyre. Why is it so important to define a specific strategy in property, Jill, when first starting off? 
Um, once again, I'm smiling at this one, Tyrone, because when I first initially will talk to people um, and they might be bringing me up or I meet them at a, a meet-up group or something, and I'd say to them, um, what's your property strategy? And they'd say, oh, anything actually. And I'd say, and where are you looking for property? And they could say to me, anywhere and everywhere. Now, my money would be on that in 12 months' time, they wouldn't have a property deal because they're spreading themselves too thinly. Be very specific once again about what your strategy is that you're doing. And if you're starting out in property, make your strategy small. Make it something that you feel confident and capable of following through. And yes, a lot of it might be unknown. And for example, I had a, a client last night and she was wanting to do subdivisions and she said, I know nothing about it. I said, but you're building the network and you've got me around you and su to support you and there's people like town planners or surveyors that can help you there. So start to be refining what your strategy is. Don't start off and do a one into eight subdivision. Start and do a one into two subdivision. If you're doing a renovation and you're wanting a quick fit money turnover deal to make some chunk money, make it a cosmetic renovation rather than structural. Start to be thinking about where your strengths are to come in to that deal, what you can contribute and who you need in the deal to make it happen. So refining your strategy is very, very important to make it manageable and yes, getting out of your comfort zone, but then putting in how it's going to work. So coming back to, to I'm looking every, everywhere is my second point. And everywhere, if you are going to know specifically what's happening in an area about an area, what's the days on the market, all of the indicators, there's so many of them, is the market going up and down? Who is my market that's going to be buying my property? What large developments are going to be coming into the property that's going to increase the demographics and the population? So many things there. You can't find, if you've got 10 suburbs you're looking at, you can't find enough detail or don't have the man hours to do it to find all of this about 10 sites unless you're doing it full time with very little else in hand. Focus on one area at a time, one or two areas. I would suggest one, on finding out all the specifics and then marry that together with your strategy so that if a property comes onto the market, straight away through confidence and know-how, you know what the land value of that property, new property would be. You know that it's a relatively new house or you know that it's a dump you know that it, what would be worth on the money on the market at the moment because you're in it every day. You're going to open houses. You're talking to agents. You're building your support system and your core. So make sure when you're moving into property and growing in property, you know your strategy and you know your area that you're focusing on. And it would all be worthwhile to put the effort in to do it. All this might sound like hard work, Tyrone, but it's not because the more that you can get in and start talking very, very quickly, you will become more proficient at doing this and surprise yourself how quickly you can eliminate the goods and the bads in an area 
it's going to work for you and fit into your criteria. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.